His blood has set me free. That's something I want to talk more about this morning. But first, it's time for Children's Church. So if you're in pre-K through the fifth grade, hey, we will see you later on. And those of you who are graduates of Children's Church, would you go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 6, please. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a pew rack in front of you. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. When I was younger in my ministry, uh, I felt compelled on Mother's Day to preach a sermon specifically about motherhood. And I felt like I had something to teach mothers because I had endured several very serious head colds in my days. My efforts were not appreciated, so I have put that practice behind me, and so today we will focus on Romans 6. My jokes are not going to be funny today. I'll just warn you ahead of time. Don't plan on laughing or smiling in any way whatsoever, but uh, Romans 6 is where we're going to spend our time. I'm glad to be in the Word with you today. And also, let me just let me commend you before we dive in. I know that these last few Sundays, the, uh, the subject matter in these passages has been thick. It's been thick with three C's, very serious, things like federal headship and union with Christ and the order of salvation, um, these can be some uh, pretty heavy topics, but you have taken them all wonderfully, uh, and uh, my hope is that, um, that it hasn't derailed you from processing what the Word has to give us. Uh, and uh, today, once again, we take on a very serious subject matter, and that's the subject matter of our personal holiness. You know, there's a, there's a common problem facing young drivers, and, and that common problem is overcorrection. And if you're a seasoned driver, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's something in your way, or, or the car veers a certain direction, and when you overcorrect, you yank the steering wheel in the opposite direction towards safety, but you yank too far. You oversteer, and you steer out of one danger and into another danger, potentially another far more serious danger than the one uh, you were originally faced with. And this problem of overcorrection isn't just a problem for drivers. It's also a theological problem. It's not uncommon that a person can strive to avoid one theological error in such a way as overcorrecting as far away from the original error as possible. And in so doing, they land in another theological error or another source of spiritual danger. And that's what our study of Romans is going to look like this morning. Uh, Paul has spent a good deal of time in this letter already addressing one specific error. If, if you've been with us at all in our study of Romans, what's the one main error that has received the most attention from Paul? Well, it's been the error of assuming that I'm justified by God based on my works. It's the belief that if I do good, God will do me well, whether by my own moral law or by observance of some religious law, even the Mosaic law. Like if I keep the Ten Commandments, if I, if I do more good than bad, then God's going to call me His at the end of my days. Paul has been explicit and clear and repetitive about the, that significant error, that we're not justified by works, but we're justified how? It's by faith, by faith alone 
in Jesus Christ. The overcorrection would be this, that in trying to get out of this one error of legalism, let's say, we would steer so far in the opposite direction into the way of grace that we would leave obedience and holiness behind. In essence, we would say, well, well, if my sin is covered by God's grace, then I should be able to sin all I want without being concerned about obedience or holiness. Here we are 2,000 years later. This error still persists. We're still prone to this overcorrection from legalism. And certainly legalism is nasty business, but does the rejection of legalism really mean that believers no longer need to be concerned with obedience or holiness? Is, is the whole of the Christian life just pray some prayer of conversion and then just live however you want? Indulge your appetites. Don't worry about Christ-likeness. You just do you and at the end of your days you're okay because you, you met some spiritual benchmark one time on one day in your life. While we're asking questions, I mean, what does that thing have to do with you? Why is this a pressing matter, or why should it be a pressing matter for you? Several years ago, in a conversation with a fellow pastor, he instructed me that in my preaching, I should focus on people's felt needs. If if I want to build the biggest church, attract the most people, focus on felt needs. And so what what he meant by that was preach on issues that people deal with like relationships, uh, or finances, or parenting, uh, or emotional struggles. If you focus on felt needs, that that will bring people in. And, And I'm not sure how many of you rolled out of bed this morning and said, I feel the need for holiness. Probably not so many of us. And I think that's because we often feel like holiness is an issue that's just one issue among all the other issues in our lives. Yeah, we, as a Christian, we know that holiness is important, but we've got all these other things going on as well. And if we were to prioritize our needs, holiness might not be near the top of the list because these other things are pressing and more in front of us. But I would argue that holiness is not one need among many, but rather it is the central issue that informs our responses in all of our felt needs. Whether we are in some sort of spiritual crisis or emotional crisis, holiness matters. Holiness matters when your marriage is struggling. Holiness matters when you are grieving. Holiness matters when you are navigating your finances. Holiness matters in your relationships, in your parenting, in your grandparenting, in your neighboring. Holiness matters in all our words and actions. It informs every scenario in which we find ourselves. So holiness may not be your felt need, but it is your greatest need. When we pursue holiness, what we're doing is we're striving to think and speak and act more like Jesus and less like our sinful selves. And there's no situation in your life that's made better by a sinful response. Likewise, there's no situation you can't endure with joy and growth when you respond like Jesus would. Mature Christians will tell you this. They'll tell you that the more you strive towards holiness the more natural a holy response is in the moment of temptation or crisis. Mature Christians will also tell you that holiness is a lifelong pursuit. The more we distance ourselves from our sin, 
the more dissatisfying our sin becomes and the sweeter our Christ-likeness becomes. Your family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, towns, and this church needs you to be holy as Christ is holy. So my purpose in preaching this passage today is to push you towards personal holiness that results in real discernible fruit in your life. I'm after motives today. I want to answer the why question for holiness in the Christian's life. How? We're going to focus on how another day. Today we're focused on the why. And so in our passage, Paul gives us three reasons to pursue personal holiness. I want you to follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 15. Paul says, What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not! Don't you know that if you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness... So now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why should a Christian pursue personal holiness? Why should this be a focus of our lives day to day? Well, Paul gives us three reasons. The first reason is this. It is, in Christ you belong to God. Christian, in Christ you belong to God. Now, each of my teaching points this morning are going to include that phrase, in Christ it's a callback to what we studied last week, earlier in chapter 6. We spoke about our union with Christ. And you might remember the airplane analogy uh, we used last week. Uh, that when you ride in an airplane, what's true of the plane is true of you. And likewise, when we are in Christ, by faith, what's true for Christ is true for us. In Christ, He died, so we died. He lives, so we live. He's victorious, so we're victorious. He's loved, so we're loved. That's what union with Christ looks like. And so when we're united with Christ, we belong to God. That's a motive for our personal holiness. Now, Paul begins verse 15 with a question. It's a question that's very similar to the one he used to start verse 1. It may have looked familiar to you when we read it. And so look at the question in verse 1. In verse 1, last week we read this, he asked, What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Verse 15, What then should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? They're similar questions but not the same. Both questions are asking permission to sin, but they are doing it from 
different places of motivation. So verse 1 is saying, well, if, if grace is multiplied by my sin, should I sin more so grace is multiplied more? And Paul's answer is no. Verse 15, if I'm covered by grace, then am I allowed to sin more and more? And again, Paul's answer is absolutely not. He answers in the strongest possible linguistic terms that he can. It would be all caps, bold, 16-point font, absolutely not. This is not proper for people of faith. God's grace is not a green light for our sin. Those who have been freed from sin's penalty are not free to continue to live in sin. When a person argues, I'm saved, therefore I can live how I want, sin all I want, it's not only a failure of theology, it's a failure of simple logic. I read this story back in 2019 and bookmarked it because I knew the day would come I would need it for a sermon. Uh, A man in Florida named Michael Lewis had been put in jail for grand theft. He served his time and was released. And while he was waiting on his ride outside of the prison, he was caught on surveillance camera breaking into cars in the jail parking lot. He was taken back inside the jail and rebooked on the very day he had been released. It would be ridiculous for this man to say, you don't understand. I've already done my time. My debt to society is paid. It's okay for me to steal because I've been set free from jail for stealing. That doesn't make any sense for Florida man and it doesn't make any sense for you. We're not saved so that we can continue to sin. God's grace is not justification for sin. It's freedom from sin. And why is that? Well, look at what Paul says in verse 16. He says, don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So Paul states as spiritual fact that all people are slaves. The only question is, who are, who's your master? And there are just two options as Paul sees it. You are either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. Now, this is where the modern, independent mind immediately says, no, stop. I'm not a slave to anyone or anything. I am the boss of myself. I call the shots for my own life. The Bible teaches us there is no such thing as spiritual autonomy. Your soul is not your own. Someone else owns your soul and you have no say over it. Your soul is owned by sin or by righteousness, one or the other. You are either under Adam's curse or in Christ's blessing. Your life is a light hidden under a basket or you're a city on a hill. You're a house built on sand or a house built on a rock. You are a goat or a sheep. You are a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Your soul is not your own. So Christian, who owns your soul? Well, Christ does. This is not a trick question. If your faith is in Christ, you are united with Him. He claims total and eternal ownership over your life. 
That ownership doesn't change based on your behavior. That ownership is set. It's once and for all. Paul addressed this even last week, earlier in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. He said, look, you're, you're no longer enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. There's only one owner per soul. So when Christians cast aside a holiness and throw themselves into sin, it's as if we're trying to live with two masters. In essence, we're saying, I want to enjoy the benefits of the cross while wallowing in the sin that Christ died for. Makes no sense at all. It cannot be this way for people of faith. Where would Paul get such an idea? That our souls are owned by either sin or righteousness. Well, he got it from Jesus. Jesus said this very same thing in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He was teaching on the temptation of money. And look at what Jesus said, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't have two masters. You can't serve both God and money. And and do you think this last word is reserved only for money? Don't you think that any manifestation of sin could be put at the end of that sentence? You cannot serve both God and your ego, God and your lust, God and your lying, God and your anger, God and your unforgiveness. And look, according to Jesus, the, the more you submit to sin, the more you will hate God. And conversely, the more you submit to God, the more you will detest your sin. So why should a Christian strive for personal holiness? Why can we not use grace as an excuse to sin? Because you have one master, and that is the God of your salvation. You belong to Him. That's not the only motivation Paul gives us for holiness, though. The second motivation he gives us is that in Christ you have a peculiar freedom. We've got this really strange freedom as followers of Jesus Christ. He's made this statement already regarding the nature of our soul's slavery, that we have only one master and in Christ we belong to the God of our salvation. But now in verse 17, this second motivation he gives us is affirming Uh, the Roman Christians in their faith and also continuing to push them towards sanctification by looking at their freedom. And so look at what he says to them in verses 17 and 18. He says, Thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. So what I want to keep in front of you is in in this passage, Paul's not calling people to question their salvation. That's, That's not what's happening here. He's not saying you might be saved, you might not be saved. This much sin, you're not saved. This little sin, you are saved. That's that's not at all what this conversation is. He's speaking to believers. He's not saying the presence of sin in our lives is should be a source of doubt or fear or concern that we've lost our salvation, but rather the reality of sin should call us to battle that sin. And so look at how he affirms the Roman Christians in their faith. Thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. So they were slaves of sin until they obeyed from the heart. That, that phrase, 
from the heart. It means the same thing in an ancient Greek culture that it means today. It implies sincerity and genuineness. You obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching. Instead of the word pattern, your Bible might say standard or form. When we think of the word pattern here, think of it in terms of uh, a pattern for sewing or a stamp that leaves an impression. Uh, I take Paul to be saying here that the gospel was imprinted on the hearts of the Roman believers. It's a really cool word picture. Uh, the gospel isn't simply a call for behavioral modification. He's not saying, look, you're doing more of this and less of that. He's saying the gospel impacted your heart. From the inside out, you've been changed by faith in Jesus Christ. You obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. The Roman Christians were not handed over to a set of guiding principles. They, they weren't handed over to a list of impersonal rules. They're handed over to their heavenly Father, handed over to God. And so as such, they're freed from sin and they became enslaved to righteousness. And that's not at all how we think about freedom, is it? We think of slavery and freedom as the antithesis of each other. They shouldn't exist in the same space. To be free is to not be enslaved. To be enslaved is to not be free. But Paul defines freedom in a really powerfully ironic way. Christian freedom is freedom from slavery but it's an entrance into a, a new kind of servanthood. Now we are enslaved to righteousness. Paul speaks this same way in his letter to the Galatians. And I want you to look at how he addresses freedom or how he speaks of freedom in that letter as well. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 and 13, he says it this way. He says, for freedom, Christ set us free. And we're on board with that, absolutely. Absolutely. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you are called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. That word serve, it's the same root word as slave. A lot of times our English translations will take the slave word and, and turn it into a servant word. That's fine. That's not bad translation, but there's not two different words. There's not a softer word for slave in our New Testament Bibles. It's, it's slave. Every time you see serve or servant, the root word is slave. And so what Paul has said here is, is that, yeah, we're free from sin, but to be free from sin is to now be enslaved to righteousness. That's why I say it's a peculiar freedom. It's not freedom to do whatever, live to our flesh, indulge our appetites at the expense of others. It is to live in bondage to righteousness. Now there's this weird line at the beginning of verse 19. Look at it with me. Paul says, I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. What's he mean by that? Well, you've got two options. Either he's addressing a moral uh, failure on the part of the Romans. So like he's saying, I'm using this slavery word picture because you've messed up in some way and this is what's best for you or you might mess up. Either it's a moral problem or it's an intellectual challenge. And, and I take Paul here to be addressing this as an intellectual thing. He's, this is a 
parenthetical statement where he says, here's why I'm using the slavery word picture. I, I'm using it so that you can understand in as clear a way as possible these huge, glorious truths of God. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to us because if you'll remember day one of our study of Romans, which you have committed to memory, and you go back and look at in your journals every day, you'll remember that the context of this letter, the original audience is largely slaves. There are people from Jewish backgrounds. There are some wealthy and powerful people among the Roman Christians, but the majority of the population, we think, were slaves, poor, without freedom, without total personhood. And so Paul uses an analogy they're going to understand to help them understand this incredible truth of God. He's going to do two things with it, as we've seen already. He uses slavery to describe the absolute horrors of sin, but also the beauty of belonging to our compassionate loving, merciful, gracious, heavenly Father. Slavery is, in the New Testament anyways, it, it's not just a, an occasional word picture. It's in fact the very way so many of our New Testament writers identified themselves. How, do you, how, how did Paul identify himself at the beginning of the letter? Do you remember? See it with your own eyes. Flip back real quick to chapter 1, verse 1. Of all the ways Paul could have identified himself, what does he choose to call himself? Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. A slave. A slave of Christ Jesus. Paul's not the only one that did this. You know, Jesus had two half-brothers who are New Testament writers as well, James and Jude. And to be a, a sibling of Jesus, that had to be a badge of honor, a reason to pound your chest or, or to give you added authority. I'm not just an apostle. I'm his brother. But that's not how these brothers identified themselves when they wrote their letters. James chapter 1 verse 1 introduces himself as James, a slave of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude introduces himself, chapter 1, it's the only chapter, verse 1, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. This is not just an occasional word picture, but it was an identity that early Christians carried with them with pride, with gladness. This servanthood is, is not a hardship. It's not a loss of personhood or freedom. In fact, it is true freedom in the Lord to be bound to Christ and bound to righteousness. It's the kind of life we were created by God to live. To take up Christ's yoke is not a burden for our souls, but it's eternal delight. And that's why we strive for holiness. We don't think of holiness as, oh, that again. i got to do more of this thing. Why can't I just do my own thing? No, it's a choice between death and life, slavery and freedom in Christ. That freedom in Christ is an enslavement to righteousness. And that's a glad enslavement for children of God. So why should you strive for holiness as a Christian? Well, because in Christ you belong to God. And, and in Christ we are free from sin. We have this peculiar freedom. We're now enslaved to righteousness. There's one final motivation for your holiness, and it's this. It's in Christ your life bears fruit. Your life is bearing fruit. Now here at the end of this section, Paul's going to mix his metaphors he combines his slavery metaphor with a tree metaphor 
to help us understand uh, what these two ways of living produce. And so in verse 19, he tells us we need to offer our bodies as slaves to righteousness. The same way you used to pursue sin, you need to pursue righteousness now, but with greater passion, greater fervency. And then in verses 20 and 21, he comments on the output or the product of a life enslaved to sin. Look what he said in verse 20. He said, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So he's asking the Roman Christians, hey, think back on who you were before Christ. He says, back then you were free with regard to righteousness. What's he mean by that, free with regard to righteousness? I think he means, what I take him to be saying is that you were absent of righteousness. You weren't bound to it. You weren't producing it. It was not present in your life. It was not a master that guided your thoughts and your actions. You just lived for yourself, for your own flesh, your own appetites. You were free. It was absent from your life. In verse 21, so what fruit was produced then? From the things you're now ashamed of. Well, the outcome of those things is death. Here's where the metaphors get combined. So if you were a tree enslaved to sin, what kind of fruit did you produce? Well, you produced death. It was your own death. It's the death that comes from God's judgment on your sin without an advocate in your place. When you were in Adam, you produced the fruit of death. But, but that's in the past, Roman Christians. That's in the past, South Shore Christians. What are you like now? Look at verse 22. But now, since you've been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification and the outcome is eternal life. So now that you are a tree enslaved to God, you are producing the fruit of sanctification, the fruit of holiness, and the outcome is eternal life. Eternal life is the promise that's held for you, right? There's a future tense way of thinking about those words, but eternal life is not just some distant future. It's the here and now for followers of Jesus Christ. So it's the life we wait on, and it's the life we live in while we're still waiting on that life to come to fruition. So when you're united with Christ, your life bears the fruit of holiness. Your name becomes associated with traits like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit of sanctification that comes from the believer's life. That's what you and I are to produce in the way we speak and in the way that we live. Brother and sister Christian, can you think back to your life before Christ? Do you remember what it was like to be without the hope of eternity? Do you remember what it was like to be enslaved to sin, the damage that did to your soul, perhaps the damage it did to others in your life. Would anyone among us say, my life was so much better when I lived for myself under the judgment of God? Who would want to go back to a life that produced that sort of death? It makes no sense for people of faith. But that's what we're saying when we try to cast aside holiness and live in sin without remorse or repentance. But now that you belong to Christ... You're to pursue holiness with greater energy and passion than you ever pursued your sin. And you have more power to do that 
Because by faith in Christ, we're freed from sin's penalty, and we are being freed from sin's power. Day by day, striving towards holiness to be more and more like Christ and less and less like our old sinful selves. Because that old self died by union with Christ. And now we are alive with Him forevermore. We must be holy. We must strive daily to be holy people. And why is that? Paul's given us three reasons this morning. He said, in Christ you belong to God, in Christ you're free from sin, and in Christ you are producing fruit. So if someone were to ask you, hey, since you're saved by grace, does that mean you get to sin all you want? You would say, absolutely not! And like Paul, your eyes would get big and you'd have eyebrows that are just like, what are you talking about? No. How could you live in that theological error? How could you live in that logical error? That makes no sense at all. I'm not saved so I can sin. I'm saved so I can live a life of righteousness that brings glory to God and joy to the people in my life. So live like Christ in all the things that make up your felt needs. <laughs> Strive for holiness in your relationships. Your marriage needs you to be holy. Your singleness needs you to be holy. If you're a parent or a grandparent or you're a spiritual mother or a spiritual father to someone, they need you to be holy. In your emotional stress, in your finances, in your work life, in your grief, in all that you think and do, your life must bear the fruit of holiness. So that means tomorrow we're going to wake up and think to ourselves, I've got a lot to do on this Monday, but my greatest need today is to be like Christ. I, I, I don't want to take on this day like my old sinful self. I want to take on this day and encounter every person I come across with the mind and the actions of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pursue in my words and actions the grace of God. So see yourselves as God sees you, as a slave to righteousness. A Puritan pastor named Thomas Brooks was undone by the idea of being God's slave. And I want you to listen to what he wrote about his belonging to God, about God's ownership of him. Thomas Brooks said this. He said, I am his by purchase and I am his by conquest. I am his by donation and I am his by election. I am his by covenant and I am his by marriage. I am wholly his. I am peculiarly his. I am universally his. I am eternally his. Once I was a slave, but now I am a child. Once I was dead, but now I am alive. Once I was darkness, but now I am light in the Lord. Once I was a child of wrath, an heir of hell, but now I am an heir of heaven. Once I was Satan's bondservant, but now I am God's free man. Once I was under the spirit of bondage, but now I am under the spirit of adoption that seals up to me the remission of my sins, the justification of my person, and the salvation of my soul. Brothers and sisters, 
be holy as Christ is holy. And if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, I saved verse 23 for you for just a few minutes. Look at verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a summary of all that Paul has talked about and what we've studied today. Have you considered what our passage has taught us today? The passage has taught us that there are two persons a person can, or two masters a person can serve, either sin or God. And it's taught us that there are two possible outcomes of our service to our master. Those outcomes are either death or eternal life. And there are two possible ways those outcomes are obtained. It's either wages earned or a gift received. Here's the eternal error that so many good people make and so many religious people make. The error is that if I'm good and religious, and if I mean well and have good intentions, then surely God will do me well at the end of my days. I will earn what God holds for me. Friend, it's an, it's an error. Not because I say so or I'm hung up on this. It's because that's the clear testimony of the Bible over and over again. What we earn, the wage we have earned is, is death. Because sin is our master. Apart from faith in Christ, sin is our master. Death is what we have earned. We'll be given that judgment. But God loves you. And here's how he's proven his love for you. God the Father sent God the Son Jesus Christ, to take on flesh and to finish, accomplish salvation for you. Jesus is God in the flesh. This is why he is such a big deal. He's the only one that could do what he has done for your salvation. He is fully God and fully man. And we see the intersection of his divinity and humanity at his virgin birth. He had to be fully human so that he could really live and really die. And he had to be fully God so that his death was effective for your salvation. And so he died on the cross for your sin, for our sin. He died as if he himself committed our sin. He didn't. He was sinless, perfect, totally holy. But he died the penalty that you and I deserve for our sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And his promise to all of us is that if we will turn from our sin and our self-righteousness, and if we will put our trust in him, our faith in him and him alone, we'll be saved, forgiven of our sin. Those shameful ways of living no longer ours. No longer do we produce the fruit of death. But now eternal life is ours. Sanctification is the path we live with God as our Father Christ is our Savior. The Holy Spirit is our comforter, holding us all the way to eternal life. That's the invitation of the Word of God today to you, that you would turn from your sin and turn to Christ who loves you and gave His life for you. There's one master over your soul. Apart from faith in Christ, it is not in debate who owns your soul. But today, if you will hear His invitation and say yes to Jesus Christ, a new master takes ownership. Your soul comes to life. And you will live in the greatest joy for all of your days and all of God's days. Today, say yes to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Father, help us in this. As your children, uh, we struggle mightily with sin. And, and it impacts us in so many, uh, so many destructive ways. It impacts our assurance of our salvation. It impacts our relationships. It, it impacts our emotional life. It, it impacts our satisfaction in life, our joy. All these things interrupted by the sin that we are so easily ensnared by. So, Father, protect us from the error that a salvation by grace means we can wallow in this death more and more. And instead, let us live in the freedom that is ours as we are enslaved to righteousness, living a sanctified life, increasing in holiness to be more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, let us live and speak in such Christ-like ways that when people see us, they would recognize Christ in us before they recognize us. Let them know us by our fruit, by our good fruit that comes from righteousness. Lord, help us in this. Give strength to my brothers and sisters in their ongoing battles with sin. Give us a tenacity, a courage, a bravery, confidence in your word that by Christ, with our union with him, we have true power over this sin. And Lord, bring new life today to the one who would trust in you. Thank you that today they get to hear the gospel. Now, would you imprint it, stamp it on their hearts as they are handed over to you so that their lives would be truly rescued and they would know eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, bring salvation today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.